This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. From Chile to the Philippines to South Africa, to her home country of Canada, our guest today, Maud Barlow, truly understands how a handful of corporations are gaining ownership and control of the Earth's dwindling water supply and, in turn, accelerating the onset of a global water crisis. In her new book, Blue Covenant, Barlow not only details her discoveries about the world's water situation, but focuses on the grassroots groups that are fighting back against corporate theft, government mismanagement, and a changing climate. Barlow is the national chairperson of the Council of Canadians and co-founder of the Blue Planet Project, which is instrumental in the international community in working for the right to water for all people. Maud Barlow, welcome to Weekly Signals. Delighted to be here. Thank you. How are you doing today? <laughs> Uh-oh. I'm fine. This yeah. is wonderful. I've uh, been in your wonderful country, well, many, many, many times, but I'm on a tour here, and it's been just really, really powerful to be just kind of diving in, if you'll forgive the water image, yeah. to uh, to the water issues in the different parts of the country. I mean, I've been in the, the thirsty deserts in, uh, you know, the southwest, and I've been just come from New England where people are fighting what I call water hunters. The big bottled water companies uh-huh. are all over scrambling for, for water because where there is water, of course, people say, why should we worry? I say, because you've got water. <laughs> you know, where you don't have water, you should be worried you don't have it. Where you do have it, you should be worried you do have it, because they're coming after it. So it's been just a, a fabulous uh, tour, and uh, speaking to Americans all over who really are beginning to take this very, very seriously. Now, you're up in Seattle right now, I right? am. And I would assume that they have water up there. <laughs> They have water, but you'd be surprised. I mean, all the communities that you think are so water-rich, many of them are dependent on glacier melts that are, or glaciers that are melting, uh-huh. um, and aquifers that are being depleted. You, you'd be surprised at areas that, just you know, we just assume there can't be a problem, um, Chicago being one of them, where there are water crises coming. And then, of course, there's the areas in the southwest or in Florida. I was just in Florida. They're adding over a thousand new people every day into Florida. And they're pumping their groundwater so fast that big sinkholes are opening up and houses and even shopping malls are being swallowed up. That's how fast the water is being pumped in Florida. So believe me, this is not an issue that's just localized. Well, it's localized here in Orange County, though. (laughs) You guys have got very local problems. Yes, I mean, it seems like forever we've relied on other people's water here to stay afloat. The the Owens Valley, the Colorado River, Sacramento. Uh, How would you describe our water situation in Southern California? You're in crisis, and it's the most important thing I can say, two most important things. One is this is not cyclical drought. The Colorado is in catastrophic decline. The snowmelt from the Sierra Nevadas, the snowmelt for other states up a little above you from the Rockies are all in crisis. Lake Mead may be gone in 10 to 12 years. It's very important that people understand that this is not a cyclical drought, but that demand is outstripping supply. The Ogallala Aquifer is being pumped too fast. The rivers are being drained and dammed too fast. 
That's the first thing. The second really important thing to say is it's salvageable if we're careful and smart. Mm. And careful and smart means that we have to conserve and we have to protect source water. And we have to start thinking about water in every single thing that we do every day. And you mark my words, you'll remember I said this, the day will come when every action we take from the way we grow food to how we travel to the products we consume to what we do in our homes, everything, everything, everything will be measured against this dwindling finite resource that's needed for life because the world's running out of fresh water. We're running out of, or of accessible clean water at an absolutely alarming rate. And in the United States, the area that's in most in crisis is where you are, but you're not, of course, uh, alone. <clears throat> I think it's very important that we not attune, turn to the simplistic solutions of um, technology. And this is a message people like Jeffrey Sachs are going around giving that technology will save us. You don't even have to worry. You can keep your lifestyle. Technology is here. General Electric has arrived. Dow Chemical, these companies are all into heavy recycling. We've got the magic of desalination, which will convert the oceans into fresh water, and everything will be fine. This is a very, this is a very dangerous um, concept. It's a very dangerous thing to trust. But when I did research for Blue Covenant, I found that the uh, government here in the U.S. and the Europeans and the Chinese, but particularly here, is putting all its eggs in this basket. Instead of source protection and instead of uh, conservation, which is where you're going to find the most water to save and to, and to, to use, um, they're looking towards the salvation of, of high technology. And I, I really do warn people there's no shortcut answer to this. We've got to stop destroying, polluting, and overusing our water. Is there any uh, truth to desalinization? It seems like they've been talking about that for yeah. half a century. Is there, I mean, is there any advancement in that field? Is no, not very much. Um, it is, although they're talking about 25 to 30 new desal plants, big ones, in California alone. And the number of desalination plants around the world is set to triple within the next 10 to 15 years. I mean, everybody is now counting on this as the miracle technology. <clears throat> desalination is, is, in, is uh, fossil fuel intensive and therefore creates more global warming. It's very, very expensive. <clears throat> Excuse me, these big, uh, these big behemoths like in Tampa Bay, Florida, get built and they go into such cost overruns, they sometimes just get abandoned. It's, uh, and it's polluting. What it does, desalination takes the seawater and it churns in all sorts of aquatic life as well. It puts it through a chemical and this reverse osmosis process and it dumps back into the ocean the intensive brine, the chemicals, and the chopped up aquatic life and it, it poisons the, the ocean around it for miles. I've seen photographs of these desal plants from the air, you know, the ones in Saudi Arabia and Israel, and it looks like an octopus has let out its ink into the ocean. Um, there is probably some place for small desal to, to protect local aquifers and, bra and to convert brackish water, but depending on these great big machines, while we are creating desert, and here's the image I want you to have in your mind, that we are, in fact, creating deserts as we urbanize and pave over um, water-retentive landscapes, as we're sucking up groundwater way faster than it can be replenished. We're creating desert. In China, they're creating a desert the size of Rhode Island every single 
um, year, you know, because they've diverted their water from watersheds and food production so that they can make all the world's toys and, you know, running shoes and shower curtain liners. And so we, 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 we must look to these technologies very sparingly. And one last thing to say about desalination. Oh, oh two last things. One is that they're now looking at nuclear power desal, which is another whole concern that we have water-wise and every otherwise. But in Israel, there's a new study that they are, and they're perplexed because they're almost totally dependent on desal water in Israel, that it's not good for the crops, and they're not knowing why, but they're very upset about the quality of food that it's, it is grown when you're using desal water, and they think it's because it's been stripped of its minerals. So, you know, there is no substitute for what nature gave us, and to think that we can rise above nature and play, uh, you know, against nature's laws like this, you know, is foolish. It's hubris. We have get, got to get away from it. We're speaking with Maud Barlow. The book is Blue Covenant, the Global Water Crisis and the Coming Battle for the Right to Water. Let's get into the commercialization of water. Well, you And I do want to come back to what you said about conservation and how we can help ourselves, but... Uh, but let's get into sort of the political realities, these sort of corporate realities that are taking place today. Uh, unbeknownst to many people, although we all know about the bottled water, we see the om- omnipresent bottle of water that we all carry around now. Uh, let's get in a you little bit. You carry one around, Mike? Well, I, some, I've, I, 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 I've, I've seen people do it. Shame and, on him. And, uh, and, but we, 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 we're aware of it, but we're really not aware of just how much – uh, corporatization, privatization of our water is going on, and also I want to get into the effects of the the uh, the World Trade Agreements, the NAFTAs and the GATS and such, and the impact they're having on our supply of water. When did this begin to take place really strongly, the, uh, the privatization and, and buying up of our waters? Well, it started in, in different ways about 15 years ago. Um, the pro- few private companies that existed were really in France, and mostly everywhere water was either non water services you know if you lived in a poor country, they were non existent or they were public in North America and Europe, and so on. Um, Margaret Thatcher brought the first privatized water services in um, and and then the two companies that existed in France were poised to go global when all of a sudden it became clear that the global south desperately needed water services, and <clears throat> the World Bank started saying, "Okay, we will fund you." But we're going to tell you that you have to take these private companies. We're not going to help you build a public system. And so they forced basically a private system on the global south. And then these companies have also been coming into the to other countries. I mean, we've had privatizations here that have been reversed most recently in Stockton, California, and Atlanta, Georgia. There are many communities that have tried privatized water, and it hasn't worked. Um, <clears throat> but these was that was that a their own city governments trying? Yeah, to, their own uh, city governments decided. Because as you know, the federal government used to fund infrastructure repair and development, and and now does not very much. I think it's down to about three percent. And and by the way, uh, Food and Water Watch, on which I chair the board here in the U.S., is calling for a clean water fund uh, for to have a, a set aside fund at the national level for water infrastructure because we literally need billions of dollars of water uh, of money for water infrastructure because we're we're losing water from old pipes, but we're also allowing the leakage of water uh, from sewage bills from these uh, this infrastructure that's desperate. Some of it's 100 years old. It just needs repair. But rather than being able to afford this or to afford water services, a lot of municipalities 
municipalities are strapped because they have had their funding cut from the federal and state level. So they they believe this myth that these private companies are going to do it better. <clears throat> well, the private companies with the same amount of money have to find 10 to 15 percent uh, uh, savings from all of this to pay to their investors and their great big salaries and so on. So they cut costs and they cut services. And in Atlanta, the water was coming out of the tap brown and stinking, and people were just furious. Well, how does this work? So I'm, I'm the city of Atlanta, and I bring in a private company what, do they come in and take over what is essentially a public asset? Yeah. That's and right. then they start running it. Is that so? They, they don't... start running it, and they run it on a for-profit basis. So they have okay. to charge enough not only for their services, which I think is fine. I mean, we I think we do need to charge for water services, although we're calling for block pricing so that everybody gets a certain amount for very little for what your needs are so the poor are not, um, you know, cut off from their water. But then you have, you know, then if you're going to waste water and be stupid about water, you're going to pay for it, right? Um, but but this, but they come in and they they're not charging for the service they're charging for profit they're charging because right. they're a great big corporation that has to make profit for their investors. But are they ever obliged to begin to uh, repair? Well, they that's what happened in Atlanta. They promised they would. They promised again and again and again. And after three, just three years of a 20-year contract, Atlanta kicked them out. Okay. And this is happening all over the world. Um, uh, Suez was just kicked out of Bolivia, the capital of Bolivia. I know in South America out. this is a big thing. Oh, yeah. Argentina's just kicked them out after 30 years. They said, we have had it. Suits and countersuits and challenges at the World Bank <clears throat> Investment Court. I mean, they're just been back and forth. But what happens is that the World Bank, instead of investing in good public services, which are what you what you leave, that's the legacy you leave. If you teach public servants how to do this and you leave this within the public service, you've got that expertise in an agency that's not for profit that delivers water because it's a human right and because people need it for life. If you hand it over to a transnational that doesn't even live there and doesn't care about the people, they just turn it over to a bunch of managers who are running it, and they're told, find profit. We don't care how you find it. Find profit. And in many cases, they simply do, they, they meter what happened in the global south and countries like Africa. South Africa, they actually put meters in. And so people have, look at this water and they say, hmm, water, water everywhere, not a drop to drink because I can't afford to pay for that water. So they go down to the rivers that have cholera warning signs on them, which mm. is why people are dying again of all of these diseases, including the plague that we once thought were gone. Then you get bottled water. And again, hardly anybody drank bottled water 15 years ago. And all of a sudden, maybe about... You know, when with the marketing that started 10, 15 years ago, all of a sudden it became the cool, hip thing to do to have this plastic bottle of water in your pocket. So it was a kind of even a sign of environmental coolness, or you were a hiker or a runner and you had your bottle of water. And we're saying to people, stop and think about this. Your regulated clean water is coming out of your tap, and it's highly regulated, and it's, you know, very, very inexpensive or free. This bottled water is usually tap water if it's Coke or Pepsi, or it's taken from an aquifer that your neighbors need. So remember, this is water being stolen from a neighbor somewhere. Um, and I've just come from New England where the, you know, the water hunters are all over pulling that water up out of the ground. And Vermont's now passing public trust legislation to protect their groundwater. They're so worried about these water hunters. So when you drink Poland Springs water or Perrier, you're drinking water from somebody 
from another American's uh, aquifer or water spring, and they don't want this. So, well, wait, wait. How does how does you mean? Do they are they literally drilling down into? Yeah, a I public... call it water mining. Water, water mining. mining is so they set up an operation and then well, the... they just get access to the land, and and okay. you see, this is the problem. If you have land. Technically, you're supposed to own the rights to the water under the land, but and that's fine if you're just you're using it sustainably. But what these companies do is they drill down into the aquifer, and they suck up the water that comes for miles around. It's not just under their land, mm. and there has been it's been a free for all. There in most states, there's absolutely no legislation to prevent this. These companies just come in, you buy it, you get a permit, or you don't. Some they haven't even had a permitting system in in Vermont, for instance, and these companies are just coming in and drinking it dry. There's a little town called Freiburg, Maine, um, in in on the Maine New Hampshire border. Poland Springs has a great big double tank truck. These huge, great big behemoths rolling down the the highway out of out of this this aquifer um, every eight minutes, 24 hours a day, 365 days a week. I mean, the people there are just up in arms over what's what's happening. And the leader of this movement, the 89-year-old former Republican businessman who's so furious, he's changed his, you know, his outlook on life, and he's, I used to be able to call the governor, and now he won't take my calls because, of course, he's fighting Poland Springs, which, you know, the governor's supporting. So it's really, really becoming a, a passionate issue in many communities. But if you stop and think of it, we put something like 50 billion gallons, 50 billion gallons, 200 billion liters of water in plastic around the world last year. <clears throat> Excuse me, and that's growing at about 10 to 15 percent every year, and that means that we're filling up landfills and our meadows and our streams and our rivers or dumping it in the ocean. Ninety-five percent of that plastic around the world does not get recycled. We, and so, and it's unregulated, and you should, and your listeners should know that bottled water is unregulated and likely not as safe as your tap water. We we just spoke last week, uh, Nathan and I off off mic. We talked to a guy that was uh, Captain Jack, Captain uh, Charles Moore, Charles Moore, um, who had been out. Go ahead, you know. Well, mentioned. I don't know exactly where you're going with it, but he's talking about the gyre off the coast of uh, California that runs to Japan with uh, a lot of plastics. Uh, for, and I guess that's where you're yeah, going. Yeah, yeah. It's it like from, a four thousand mile long, and they're not even sure how deep it is. They've sent uh, a trash heap in the ocean, and it's mostly ocean. small plastic particles. And you've got to believe it's certain that uh, much of this is coming from these bottled uh, bottled water uh, containers, and uh, it's filling up our oceans with this deadly plastic that the fish are eating and re and recycling uh, into uh, into our food chain. So it's just an it's. The, 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 well, the, the one uh, I'll you know, go in the one story he told, which I thought was fascinating, yeah. is the albatross. Uh, I can't recognize the bottle caps, and oh, they are feeding they it to their young, yeah. and the young are uh, interpreting that as food and uh, starving to death. A, qu- a quarter of yeah. the albatross population yeah. is, is it was dying like a quarter the, of a million albatross yeah, are dying a year, yeah, a year yeah. because of, of this. Uh, um, oh, that's a horrible story. Well, yeah, yeah this yeah. Captain Charles Moore, and uh-huh. he was he was here He's in from the studio. Here. He was in yeah. the studio talking. See, about... We we have this notion that we're above nature. You know, we right. humans, particularly in the global north, we're the kings of the of nature. Right. We don't have to obey nature's laws because. You know, technology will somehow come along and, and, and fix it all. And to me, that's the worst kind of hubris. It's like saying if I put some poison in one part of my blood in my body, it'll stay localized and won't move around. You know, we know that's not true. And how do we not understand that the 
the water, the fresh water in the world is the lifeblood of the earth. And if we destroy it... Well, you know. I mean, just to put a to put a little frosting on that story, beca- because of this 4,000-mile-long... What's a gyre? Well, yeah. they call it the gyre. The gyre. gyre. It, it, is, it is choking off um, life under it because it's knocking down a lot of the light source and the plankton who would normally be migrating to the surface... Uh, for for their sustenance are now being eaten by these sort of barnacle like things that are that that are living off the plastic. So it's destroying this this uh, this ecosystem in a very significant way. And it's like I said, four thousand miles long. So it's not an yeah. insignificant amount of. Uh, so I want to uh, real quickly because we we're unfortunately running desperately short of time here. Vivende, Suez, Bechtel. These are some of the larger corporations. We have a lot of this relationship with, between these companies and the countries that they are sort of pirating this water out of are, are sort of cemented by GATT and NAFTA, these world trade agreements. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Uh, in NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, water is both a good and an investment. In the WTO, water is a good, and now they're trying to put water into the general agreement on trade and services, which would mean that a, a city like Atlanta, which went private, wouldn't have had a chance to undo it because you basically make an agreement to open up your markets and you can't undo that agreement once Because you, it supersedes national It, it national supersedes national law. Yeah, and, okay. and uh, you know, people who are doing really good work on this public citizen uh, trade campaign uh, with Lori Wallach's doing terrific work if people want that. There's very good information on Food and Water Watch's uh, website. I chair the board of Food and Water Watch here in the U.S., and they've got wonderful <clears throat> work and, and study. IATP, Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, go to their website. <clears throat> Excuse me, they've got really good material on it on trade and water. So there's terrific ways for people to get more information on how these trade rules basically tie the hands of local and state governments to protect their local water sources or their local public sector or their um, local hiring laws and so on, and and superimpose upon it the rights of these big corporations. And we need to stop seeing this as countries versus countries, but rather how these trade agreements are used to to put down and and negate the rights of citizens everywhere. That's why I was a Canadian. I, I love working here because I don't see this as Canada's water or U.S. water or whatever, but this is ecosystem water, and we need to be building agreements around sharing and taking care of the, the, the resources that we have around us and, and respecting the rights of all people to live um, with dignity um, and, and with water forever. Well, we need to end on some positive notes here. Are these GATT or NAFTA agreements coming up for renewal anytime soon? Do we have an opportunity to modify these agreements so that we can then begin to take control of our water system? Well, we have stopped the general agreement on trade and services at the moment because the whole WTO has to ground to a halt. And that's the good work of groups like ours and and working with uh, poor governments in the global south who said we just had enough of this. And we have to remember that the extension of NAFTA to to Latin America in the call, it was called the Free Trade Area of the Americas, is dead as a donut, (laughs) dead as a whatever it is dead. (laughs) It's gone. Uh, And that's because of resistance, and that's because we shared our information with people in Latin America and said, this is what NAFTA did here, don't let it happen to you. So this is good news. We have both Democratic contenders calling for the reopening of NAFTA, and this is a wonderful time for us to jump on that, and we're calling in Canada. Our groups are all coming together to say thank you, uh, Hillary Clinton and 
you know, Barack Obama for opening this up, and now we're going to jump in with what we think could be made better, too, including taking away the right of corporations to sue governments of another country. Uh, if they don't like the new environmental or protection laws that they're bringing in. <clears throat> so this is a wonderful opportunity to talk about what we would, what kind of a North America we would rather have, what kind of an international trade system we would rather have. Because when you know, when you look at polls, you know what's interesting? I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat. I don't care if you're American or Canadian or European or African or Asian. Do you know what people around the world still say they want the same things? They want to live with dignity. They want to make a decent living, but they don't terribly want to live that much better than other people as long as they can yeah. take care of their families. They want clean air, clean water, safe schools, good health care for their kids. People around the world want the same things. And somehow our leaders keep saying, we don't care what you want. Here's what you're going to get instead. And I think that we need to, to feel really strongly right now that this is a moment of, of, yeah. of time because it's becoming so clear the earth has hit its biocapacity and right. we can't push it any further. Right. This is the time to talk about how we can do things differently. And water is going to be a really good teacher from nature to start us on this journey. Well, I want to thank you so much for being here on Weekly Signals. The book is A Blue Covenant, uh, the, water, the Global Water Crisis and the Coming Battle uh, for the Right to Water. Maud Barlow, thank you so much for being here today on Weekly Signals. You take Pleasure. care of yourself. Thank you. Nice to talk to you nice both. Nice talking to you. Bye-bye. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit NathanCallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals. <laughs>